0: this show is produced by the hartman media company for more information and links to all our great podcasts visit hartmanmedia.com welcome to the solomon success show where we explore the timeless wisdom of king solomon and the bible as it relates to business and investing. false prophets and get rich quick schemes are everywhere let's not be distracted by these instead Let's go to the source, the eternal principles that create a life of peace, power, and prosperity. Here's our host, Jason Hartman. It's my pleasure to welcome Connor Boyack to the show. He's the author of several books, I believe 12 or so, and about half of those are children's books, and they are fantastic, teaching kids about all sorts of very important things that the school system is certainly not giving them any education on. He's also the founder and president of Libertas Institute, and he's based in Utah, and it's great to have him on the show today. Connor, welcome. How are you?
1: Thank you, Jason. I'm very well. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, good to have you. I've seen some of your work. You were introduced to me by Pat Donahoe, who's um, in our Venture Alliance Mastermind group. And um, Pat's a great guy, really respect his opinions and stuff. And wanted to have you on the show. He gave me copies of all of your children's books. And I got to say, they are excellent. Um, Thank you. Really good work. Let's talk a little bit about the economy, fiscal, monetary policy, all of this incredibly important stuff that so many people just ignore they act like it's not important they act like it's boring and then they just have no idea how their their wealth their savings their ability to form contracts and get a job and and do things in the marketplace is just impacted by all of this stuff it's it's tragic (laughs) and you and you know how i can tell this is true connor social media it is absolutely shocking to me especially millennial generation i'm gonna pick on them for a minute here and of course this is a generalization so i apologize to those millennials listening that are really smart and good critical thinkers but there just seems to be this massive lack of the ability to engage in critical thinking anymore Does that strike you the same?
1: It strikes me the same for personal reasons, which may help explain kind of the problem or set the stage for what we're talking about. When I was in college, I took an entry-level economics course, and I found it immensely boring, right? Like, I I was confused. I didn't see any relevance to my life. I did poorly in it. it. It didn't really connect with me. I thought it was just a bunch of graphs and charts and macroeconomics and things I didn't understand, things that didn't have any personal significance, and so it wasn't until many years later when I began to study some of the economic theory, especially from kind of the Austrian economic, free market economic theory, where I began to see that economics is actually really interesting. And at the end of the day, it's more about human interactions and psychology than it is about aggregate numbers and formulas and charts. And so I began to see over time that, and I agree with you, there's this problem of, of a profound lack of understanding of, of even apathy towards economics. And I think one of the problems that stems from that is that when people disengage as people increasingly disengage, it's left to the so-called experts and people who may or may not really understand economics that well or have our collective best interests in heart. I think economics is something that we need to widely understand. We need to collectively engage in it and understand and participate in and certainly the public policy that is shaped from our economic understanding. And so from my own ignorance and apathy, it was years later that I began to see that what an injustice it was for me to go through school and come out of that thinking economics is dull and irrelevant. And so that's, I think, where the critical problem is. That's what led to these Tuttle Twins books that you're referring to so that we could start to try and address that.
0: Yeah. Okay. So give us your view of uh, kind of your worldview of where we are now in terms of the economy, the fiscal and monetary issues that affect every person listening so greatly. It's just, you got to get interested in this stuff. And by the way, my story mirrors yours pretty well, because I remember I took macroeconomics in in college at Long Beach City College, and Mm -hmm. I was totally bored by it. But then, you know, later in my adult life, I got extremely Extremely interested and you know I guess it was really the Austrian school and reading G Edward Griffin's book he, he spoke at our last um, meet the masters conference uh, earlier mm-hmm. this year it became very interesting to me and most people they just don't realize what an epic sky. Scam! The way the powers that be that are the most powerful forces the human race has ever known, governments and central banks, the way they've set up the system, uh, it's just rigged. It's totally rigged.
1: It's rigged, but I think part of the problem is it requires, like, take G. Edward Griffin as an example, right? Here's a guy who's invested significant time and energy to understand particularly the Federal Reserve System and, you know, our entire financial system, how it's, you know, propped up on stilts at the house of cards. And, and I think he exemplifies why so many people don't pay attention and don't engage because you do have to follow the rabbit hole. You do have to really dig in and understand this stuff. It's not superficially presented. It's not taught. It's not headlined or tweeted. You know, you have to really unpack a lot of this historical stuff. You have to be your own investigative journalist. And so I think that's, Broadly speaking, why a lot of people disengage. Now, my story is a little, a little bit of a twist on it, where I did dedicate the time to read and investigate. And I did come to the understanding, this was a little bit before the bubble, so 05 and 06, where I began to study a lot of this stuff and realize that it is a scam and it's all rigged. I became a big gold bug. I was a prepper. I was buying all sorts of commodities and supplies and gear and everything, thinking, you know, when the crap hits the fan— mm-hmm we want to be ready. I don't think and, that's the
0: answer. By the way, yeah, and, but but well, yeah.
1: <laughs> what's interesting though is is I did at the time uh-huh. and I found something that I've seen in a lot of other people as well and that is fatigue. Mm-hmm. So yeah. people who are aware and did, you know, see the bubble or whatever, I've seen people get kind of lazy that even if they understood that stuff, they're just like, well, You know, it's been a decade since then, and things are still rolling along. So who knows, right?
0: This is a new thing. It's called Prepper Fatigue. And I'll just tell you something funny about that, Connor. I host a a show called The Holistic Survival Show. We'll probably air this episode on that, as well as my American Monetary Association show and maybe some of our other personal finance shows. But I did uh, over 250 interviews, and I just found that everybody was kind of saying the same thing. And, you know, it's, of course, good to do the basics. But the question is, and I think where a lot of Uh, argue with me if you want about this, but like, I'll say people in your camp, okay, and Mm -hmm. I'm partially in your camp too, where they tend to lose the ear of their listeners is that, you know, everybody's saying, yeah, the system's rigged, like I just said, you know, this, that, and the other thing, the national debt, but it just keeps going. It keeps perpetuating forever. I mean, you know, like I had Peter Schiff on the show years ago, and he's just, I mean, he's just wrong all the time. But yet, yet he makes sense. You know, to listen to his arguments, they make sense. And I think part of this issue, and what I'm talking about is the concept of you know the chickens coming home to roost, if you will, with the national debt and the you know fiat money supply and so forth. Part of the problem is that. It's not about math only. Math is a part of it, right? We're totally upside down. We spend too much. You know, we print too much fake money, blah, blah, blah. That's all true. But... A lot of it, you know, is the question of how long can they just keep this going the way it is. And when you have the largest military the human race has ever known, you could probably kick this can down the road a hundred years, maybe longer. I don't know. You know, that's the thing. Like all of these things, it's kind of like people talking about UFOs, right? You know, when I was a kid, I was super interested in that topic. Now, if I hear someone talking about it, it's like... You know, unless this is going to be meaningful to my life in some way, I'm just not. You know? right? It, it's like, OK, show me a real UFO and then I'll get interested. But until then, you know, it's all just talk. Right. So I don't know.
1: I think you're right. I think the system also is inherently perpetuating itself just because it does like the system has to in order to survive. And and like any system, especially the state, it wants to expand its power, its territory, its wealth. But I think at least part of the problem, especially taking it down from a systemic level back to an individual level is that the problem uh, to be solved, to be addressed, requires accountability. And I think that is a huge disincentive for people, right? This is as much a problem of personal credit card debt as it is, you know, total debt for the entire country. Um, And so I think as I talk to people, for example, my first book was about libertarianism and free markets and property rights. In my second book, I wrote a book about how the flip side of having individual liberty is having personal responsibility and accountability and it was staggering to me to see the first book selling really well got all sorts of news traction et cetera, and then the second book was largely a flop because no one wants to buy a book that tells them that they have all these responsibilities and that we have to prepare and that we have to be you know fiscally prudent and so forth i think that's part of the problem is that we are inherently disincentivized to save right and to be wise and so as that trickles up through our elected officials and so forth Especially when, as you say, we have the military, we have the printing press, there's no incentive to change.
0: Okay, so where does that put us? That was kind of the question. That's, that's all interesting. Where are we now? I mean, is the economy on the verge of collapse, for example? <laughs> or, or is it booming? Or do we not know? Maybe we can't tell.
1: I think a lot of it is those like Peter Schiff, who you previously mentioned, have been making predictions and are sometimes right and sometimes wrong. For my part, I'm going to try and have a big scoop of humility here. I have no idea. For a long time, I tried saying, you know, it's coming. It's on the verge. This can't be sustained anymore. I try and have a mindset of saying, you know what, I want to be prepared. I want to have my assets invested and saved in the right way such that if it happened tomorrow, it wouldn't be the end of the world, you know, for our family. Because I don't know, but I want to act as if I've got another 20 years. Mm-hmm. When I was a prepper, I was living so insulated. I was so worried about current events. I thought, you know, every boogeyman around the corner was going to break the system down. It was not healthy for me. You yeah, know, I agree that's
0: not healthy. That's a great point. I'm so glad you said that because here's the thing I say about the prepper community. You know, basically to be reasonably well prepped, if everyone just spent $300 they would have everything they need to you know, live for three weeks pretty well, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. For the next natural disaster or whatever, whatever happens, right? 300 bucks. That's it. You know, but some people make their whole lives and it's like, they're so busy. I always say they're so busy preparing for the end of the world, preparing to die that they never actually live in the first place. (laughs) You know, And that's no good. That's not a good plan. So yeah. Okay. So there's some good balance that we've talked about. And that's, that's great that we've drawn a line and, and, and talked about some balance. So this system that we have the fiat money fractional reserve lending fractional reserve banking system. It's a scam. It's rigged. It can't go on forever. You know, it's a house of cards. But, you know, what should we do? And, you know, any more thoughts on where we are now?
1: I'm a big fan of and I'm sure your listeners have heard plenty about it by now is is cryptocurrency. I think this is one of the great future leaning opportunities to try and shield ourselves from the central banking system to try and have peer-to-peer transactions that can be trusted, so we don't have to participate in these corrupt institutions and intermediaries. I think you know the blessing of technology is that it's allowed individuals to transact with one another. You you know don't have to use a taxi company. You can just call up an Uber driver and have someone show up. You can have someone on TaskRabbit go you know fetch you something. And I think that is our future. I think there's a huge benefit to our economy. But I think the most important thing is that it's a big fancy where they you know typically don't like using but the disintermediation basically getting rid of all the middlemen so that these corrupt individuals especially the you know the rent seekers and all the regulatory capture you know we take them out of the middle i think that's where the benefit is and the opportunity for those of us who are worried about you know the house of cards come crashing down There's going to be alternative opportunities to invest, to shield our savings. And I think cryptocurrencies is at least part of the answer. Okay, so
0: I'm glad you brought that up. Let's talk about that. And let me give you my take because I'd I'd love to hear you, you debate this with me a little bit. So- First off, I, as I've said many times on the show, and and I've been saying this for, you know, seven years since I first learned about Bitcoin, maybe seven years ago or something. I don't know. How long has it been around? When it was like 80 bucks is when I first heard about it. (laughs) Okay. So whatever that date was, maybe five years, something. Anyway, when I first heard about Bitcoin, I thought, wow, this is a great idea. So here's what I said. I'd love nothing more than to be wrong about this, but I don't think it's going to work. And the reason is you have the most powerful forces that the human race has ever known, governments and central banks, with standing armies. And this is competition, like gold is competition for fiat mm-hmm. currencies, right? The product governments produce is regulation and currency, fake currency that's fiat. It's, you know, by authority, right? And mm-hmm. they build all the legal tender laws around this, and they will either squash it just, you know, because it's competition and they'll just outrightly try to stop it somehow. And I know every, you're going to say, well, it's decentralized. They can't stop it. You know, and I've heard that argument about a billion times. But, you know, if you take, for example, cocaine, right, that's an illegal substance. Well, try and trade in cocaine. Yeah, you could do it a little bit. They can't stop it completely. Sure. There's a little bit going on on the margins. People use it as a currency to some extent, for sure. And, you know, it's small, portable, and valuable, just like gold and cryptocurrency is even more portable, right? And so that's a problem. I, you know, I mean, there's not going to be any real trading in an illegal drug, right? Because mm-hmm. it's illegal. There It'll just be on the fringes always. And then the other thing is, they're, you know, they say, well, there's only... 21 million bitcoins, or whatever the number is, right? And so it's limited, and, you know, it's basically a mathematical equation to mine the rest of the coins, right? And Uh and so... Then there's all these other fiat currencies. There's everything built on the Ethereum platform. There's Litecoin, Dogecoin. There was Kanye coin. Kanye West had his own. Uh, You know, there's all sorts of these other coins coming out. It's like, you know, you're living through a tulip mania bubble when every cocktail party you go to, one or two people talk about how they're doing an ICO, an initial coin offering, right? It's like, oh my God, please, if another person says that to me, I'm going to (laughs) faint. <laughs> I mean, seriously, you just this is just like bubbleville. OK, now, you know, from a person who owns exactly one Bitcoin and is very sad that they did not buy a lot more at the moment. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to be wrong, though, Connor. I'm still holding to my guns here that this thing is not it's not going to last. You know, so
1: I, I'm going to have some agreement and some disagreement with you. I agree that a lot of these, you know, alternative coins or altcoins as they're called, will go to zero. I it's think there's. Like a lot of hype. Right.
0: There's alt coins. Okay. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I think a lot of them will go to zero. I think there is a lot of hype and there certainly is speculation. I don't necessarily believe that speculation or a bubble is inherently bad because I think it does provide and attract capital and attention that if the underlying system is sound can help propel further development and growth Um, And so I don't know that inherently, you know, prices rising and everyone getting excited about it is bad. As long as the fundamentals are sound, I'm long on Ethereum. I think the technology itself has a ton of potential. When you look at Bitcoin, it was always saddled by this, you know, Silk Road negative perception of being used for selling drugs and hiring assassins, right? Which amazingly enough, it's at least on the day that we're recording today, over $6,500 now for Bitcoin, which is an all time record. But Ethereum, not only has it not had that negative baggage, it's also had a lot of positive. You have the enterprise Ethereum alliance where some of the largest corporations and governments around the world are signing on to say, Wow, this technology. not Leave alone the currency aspect of price. But
0: that's that, you know, Connor, look at this is the problem. The technology is not the currency. The map is not the territory. We know this, right? Everybody tries to confuse, just like... I'm so glad you brought this up. Everybody's confusing the technology with the currency. So, sure, you can invest in the picks and the shovels and the Levi's, like they did during the gold rush, right? Some people did, and they're the ones who made out by investing in the technology, right? And maybe maybe the Federal Reserve will actually be someday using that technology for their coin. I mean, the cryptocurrencies that's going to work, that are going to work, are going to be backed by governments. And I'd love to be wrong about this. I hate it. You know, the decentralized system, it's its a scam. But, well, but I just think it's too powerful. Point. Yeah, go ahead. Jason,
1: let me address that yeah. second point Good. that you brought up earlier. And that is the governments are going to shut this down, right? We don't traffic in cocaine, for example. And I don't disagree with you there. I think ultimately, as some of these technologies, Technologies mature as the altcoins go to zero. And maybe it's, let's just say, for purposes of our conversation, Bitcoin and Ethereum are the two leading coins that come out of all this and have the most adoption and so forth. So, yeah, maybe the government starts shutting it down. And maybe, like with gold, they just pass a law or an executive order saying, as with gold, like we're going to confiscate it. You have to turn it in, right? You can't transact in this stuff anymore. But then I think of things like. Back in its day, I think of Napster or I think online how easy it is today to watch pirated movies despite all the laws and the enforcement and the fines. So I've never believed that Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency is going to get mass adoption and the governments were just going to stand idly by. My current belief is that cryptocurrencies in the long run, short of the you know Federal Reserve approved coin that I agree will probably happen at some point
0: that'll be the winner
1: (laughs) many central many central banks are already doing this creating in other countries right so short of that i think there are still going to be these alternative coins that technologically savvy people using vpns and other technologies to mask their identity to have actual security encryption and anonymity are still going to be transacting much like they're sharing these you know pirated videos and files right now so I, i think that in the long run unapproved cryptocurrency is still going to be a thing it will still allow liquidity on a global market it will be decentralized i don't believe it's going to have this mass adoption that governments are going to stand idly by on that point i agree with you
0: yeah, I, I think the government, as soon as it gets too big, like they'll let it run for a while. A lot of people will make money. A lot of people lose money, you know, uh, because it'll go up and down. It's very speculative, obviously. You know, then when they want to, they'll squash it. They'll either engineer a crisis or they'll just take advantage of a crisis or be complicit in a crisis. Who the hell knows? But a crisis will occur and they will step in to protect us, little people. They always protect us, little people. They're so good about that. The government, I'm being sarcastic, of course. Uh (laughs) But but it's always their excuse for everything. You know, we got to protect the public. Right. Uh, So exactly right. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, Jason, not only is that right, we haven't talked about it, but one of the books that I wrote was based exactly on that trend, because the reason, you know, your listeners, I'm sure know. But the reason you're so sarcastic about it is because it it happens all the time. Right. right. Like that is the modus operandi of government. So I wrote a book called Feardom that basically compiles all those instances where the government uses fear to exploit our emotions to exploit a crisis and say, oh, we're here to protect you right, from right. this crisis we either manufactured or took advantage of. It's yeah, a very yeah. prevalent thing, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. So the false flag concept is, is a big part of it. So give us some examples of where the government does that. Some things where you know people may not realize that their freedoms are just being eroded like crazy because the government is protecting them.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll start with the easiest example and the most controversial, and that is 9-11. And you don't have to believe one single conspiracy theory about 9-11 to see that the government has taken advantage of that. And not only that, it wasn't that, oh, hey, 9-11 happened, so let's pass the Patriot Act and let's you know, pass all these new regulations and the TSA and so forth. When you look at some of the architects and some of the influential people in the Bush administration, for several years prior to 9-11, they were advocating In fact, there was a group called the Project for the New American Century, and it included many of these intellectual elite that the Bush administration included or hired, I should say, and they wrote a paper. This was published, I think, a year, might have been two years before 9-11, in which they call for a new Pearl Harbor, saying that, you know, we need to galvanize the public and we need something to rally around. And then, again, you don't have to believe that 9-11 was at all orchestrated or planned or anything, but... Sure enough, here it comes his crisis. It doesn't
0: have to be like, it could just be an issue of, you know, what many people have accused the government of in Pearl Harbor. It could just be complicit. You know, the government doesn't have to orchestrate it. They might have just known it was coming and let it happen, right? There's all sorts of, you know, I hate to even use the damn phrase conspiracy theories about that because there are conspiracies. Give me a break. Like, anybody who doesn't believe that there are conspiracies is is an idiot, okay? You know, they they marginalize people saying, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist. You must be a a moron with a tinfoil hat. No, there are actual conspiracies. Grow up. You know, big deal. They're happening all the time.
1: Jason, let me offer an example that will validate what you're saying i often share the story of operation northwood this was uh, back in the height of the the cuban crisis jfk and the joint chiefs of staff the highest military brass orchestrated a plan this was operation northwood in which they would kill american citizens they would bomb a boat containing cuban immigrants they would have domestic terrorism And they would blame it all on Cubans. They would have patsies. This was like the highest military brass. We know about this because the plan for Operation Northwood has since been declassified. You can find all the paperwork online on official government websites. And so the only reason why Operation Northwood never happened is because when the Joint Chiefs of Staff presented it to the president, JFK, he shot it down. Hmm. And so to say that these things never happened is the height of ignorance, right? Because as you just pointed out, these things do happen. That's not to say every conspiracy theory is true. It's simply not. But you have to be open to the idea that, as you said with back to the cryptocurrency, the government does this stuff. It happens. It's likely going to happen in the future. And I don't know when and where, but if we don't want to be taken advantage of, we have to have open eyes and consider that the government is going to do these things. And so how are we going to plan and prepare so that we don't get screwed along the way?
0: Yeah. Any other examples of government uh, using fear, the feardom concept? Uh, 9-11 is kind of a big one, but maybe there are some more subtle examples.
1: Yeah, I include several in this book, feardom. I wasn't prepared to speak about it, but one that comes quickly to mind happened actually, I believe, a few years after 9-11. And there was an instance when someone believed that there was a, a biological agent i think it was sarin gas or it was i can't quite remember off the top of my head but you know the media went hysterical they shut down entire you know blocks the media couldn't stop talking about it and as it turns out it was it was nothing we see this with the avian flu with swine flu right you see it with y2k there's all these examples where everyone is freaking out about it and people are buying things the store shelves are being emptied of hand sanitizer and face masks And then literally like two weeks later, no one hears about it anymore. It falls off the radar. No one's talking about it. And, so, and
0: what do you want to bet? There were a bunch of stock trades around that by the insiders, too. <laughs>
1: yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you
0: know, the, the hand sanitizer, the Purell stock went through the roof, right? <laughs> or whatever,
1: you know. And this just a couple years yeah. ago with Liberia, it was the same thing. Oh, there's this, you know, mass infection and someone flew into America and it's this big crisis. The thing that I find so troublesome with that for your listeners, for me as an individual, is every day it's like, what's the daily fear? I'm going to log on to Facebook. I'm, I'm going to see what I'm supposed to be worried about today oh and tomorrow it's going to be something else we are so acted upon rather than acting right like we're told what we're supposed to be worried about everyone changes their behavior they have anxiety they change their plans they don't go on that flight whatever because we're constantly in fear of these things that we're told are this like massive problem when statistically, of course, terrorism is the greatest example. It's like the thing that most people are scared of. Our government spends like billions of dollars. If not, I think we're including the wars up into the trillions now. And yet your statistical likelihood of dying from a terrorist act is less than your TV crushing you and, and to death. Yeah,
0: I, I agree with you about that. Statistically, you're, you're definitely right. But I got to tell you something. Radical Islam is one of the scariest things in the world, I think. Now I don't know if it's blowback I'm a Ron Paul fan I bet you are too uh, mm-hmm. from what little I know about you I don't know if it's a blowback or not but the fact is we are where we are right okay so when something has you know 1.6 billion people and there's like this religious element behind it, And uh, they are in virtually every country. And the way they operate with no real leadership. And, you know, they have cells and sleeper cells and all this stuff. And I'm sure the government hypes this, okay? But there is some of it does exist. The government's not completely making it up, okay? Sure. You know, something like that is pretty darn scary. Yeah, maybe today the statistical chances are low that you know, you would be the victim of a terrorist attack, but that doesn't mean it can't quickly escalate into something that happens all the time. I mean, look at, you know, yesterday we had this thing with a guy with a Home Depot truck that ran over and killed eight people in New York City, two of them kids. What are we going to do? Put uh, you know, we we got to have a waiting period to rent a truck now. I mean, you know, we got to have truck control. I mean, that's the weapon they're using, right? <laughs> they they did right. that in they did that in in France last year and when they killed like 70 people or something with another truck, people talk about gun control. What about truck control? We need truck control. Seriously. You, you hopefully can catch my snarkiness in there, right? Absolutely. <laughs> That's, I'm, I'm pointing out that it's not going to work, okay? And, you know, in Europe, I mean, Europe is a pathetic disaster, okay? Europe is a disaster. I spent seven weeks in Europe this year, and I was born in Europe, too. And it is a sad, sad disaster. Europe has committed suicide through mm. socialism, immigration, and political correctness. The suicide of almost an entire continent, there are some exceptions, but the lion's share of the continent has committed suicide with those three means. And it's just pathetic. And, you know, you don't even hear, they don't, the media doesn't even report. Talk about another conspiracy, right? They don't even report on the arson of the cars. You know, when people are burning up the cars in these Muslim ghettos of France, you know, they don't report on all the stabbings, like the knife, slashing three people, seven people. Nobody's going to be ready for that. You can never stop it. Right. No one talks about immigration control except Trump. OK, but, you know, they talk about, oh, we got to control the guns. I don't know why no one talks about controlling the trucks. Uh, you know, uh, maybe liberals like trucks. I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> you know, they They certainly think they pollute too much, but they like to use all the products those trucks deliver to them. Of course, I don't know. You know, it's just a crazy world we live in.
1: It is. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, taking us back to where we started, my concern is that as adults, the public, we're so often disconnected from these fundamental principles, understanding the world around us. Certainly, I think our school system does not do kids any favor in kind of opening their eyes to many of the issues we've been discussing today. If anything, the government school system wants to keep their eyes closed to many of these truths. And so I think at the end of the day, my long play is to say we have to be engaged With the rising generation, you know, in terms of you asking me about the future and prediction and so forth, I like to say, you know, we got to fertilize the adult trees. We got to nurture them back to good health, but we better be planting trees for the future. Like, yeah, we may go through a big correction. The house of cards may come tumbling down, but chances are, you know, most of us are going to come out of that, whether it takes a month or 10 years. And so we have to be thinking of the future. We have to be thinking about how do we shape a system and how do we educate people in a way where we can avoid this happening in the future. And unfortunately, you know, in our kind of free market movement, I see too few people doing that. We're talking to other adults, but, you know, we're waiting until these people become adults to talk to us. And by then they've been fed so much propaganda and have so much ignorance. I think we have to make a play for the rising generation. And so at the end of the day, that's kind of what we're trying to do is to say, let's have a long-term solution and remedy so that whatever happens in the short term, we have a better long-term.
0: Yeah, right, right. Good stuff. Okay, so we talked about feardom. We talked about the monetary issues a bit. You know, anything else you want to just kind of just wrap it up with, you know, give our listeners any, any more, you know, you've got all these books on these different topics. Just tell us the span of the books uh, that you've written, the kids' books at least.
1: Yeah, so the The Tuttle Twins books is a children's series. Uh, It's for kids age about five to 10. And the whole idea is to introduce to young kids these civic and economic and political principles that they're not really being exposed to. And we base each of our books. You mentioned G. Edward Griffin earlier, who wrote The Creature from the Jekyll Island. And so we have a children's edition of that, right? So we take these classic books and we distill down the, the few ideas that are the main points of that book. We wrap them in a fun story. And we've been blown – we've sold over 100,000 now. We've been blown away at how much kids love this. They love the story, the illustrations. Uh, uh, which by the, by take, the way, listeners,
0: 100,000 books in today's world with so many books being published and the marketplace being so crowded is an amazing accomplishment. I mean, well, if you. an author nowadays sells over five thousand books, they're considered a successful author, ok? So <laughs> it's not like the olden days where there were like, you know, just a small number of books being published every year now. it's it's hard to sell that many books. It's really hard. So it yeah, is.
1: congratulations, thank you, jason. and And the thing that we benefit from, of course, is we don't really have any competition. right? There's no other children's books that really do this kind of stuff. And so that's to our benefit, and it helps get the books out there because, Caring parents, especially the ones who are more you know, libertarian or conservative-minded, see that their children, especially if they're in public school, are being fed a load of junk, and so they want kind of an antidote. They want to counteract that. And so the 100,000 books we passed, we're selling all these books. We have six total. Our seventh one actually comes out very shortly. It's based on Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. Oh, yeah. And so that one – Life life changing
0: book. That's awesome. Absolutely. Who who is John Galt? And, you know, adults can read these books and use them as kind of a cliff notes. If you don't have time to read 1200 pages of Atlas Shrugged or The Creature from (laughs) Jekyll Island, you know, you can read the kids book as as a light, you know, light, easy cliff notes version. So I think it's it's got that application, too.
1: That's such a funny thing. You mentioned that. And this was totally unintentional. But when we started publishing the books, it was all about helping kids. What we found is that we have this huge secondary audience. And I don't mean to sound you know stereotypical or sexist by any means. But what we're finding is it's the mom's who enjoy reading these books with their kids. They have yeah. kind of this shared you know, they're, bonding experience. And they're learning experience. a lot with it. yeah, And they're great. learning a yeah, ton. Yeah, they right? would never pick up these you sure. know, original books. So we're educating yeah. a lot of people. It's been a ton of fun.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Connor, give out your website. Tell people where they can find out more.
1: Great. Thank you, Jason. So the website is simply tuttletwins.com. If your listeners use the coupon code LIBERTY, they can get 20% off. We have activity workbooks and all sorts of stuff we include. Uh, we hope you'll check it out. It's it's just tuttletwins dot com
0: and promo code liberty, right? Yes, sir. Excellent, excellent, good stuff. Do you have a Twitter handle you want to give out or anything like that?
1: Yeah, I'm on Twitter. It's uh, C Boyack. That's C B O Y A C K or Tuttle Twins on uh, Twitter and Instagram.
0: Connor, uh, let's not be surprised if your Twitter account disappears and you get banned because, of course, your message is so subversive.
1: Maybe so. <laughs> I, mean, <it's laughs> I just, would welcome that attention.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know the the. It's funny how well it's not funny. It's tragic how technology is so left wing, and I just think that happens in every business and and kind of person's life when the money comes in when the money is flowing easily you know like it is toward technology or show business or you know anything like that it's just everybody just leans to the left and it's just it's just tragic it really is and these these companies i think the two scariest companies on earth are google number one scariest facebook number two because of the way they can influence and already have influenced elections It is, um, you know, and there's no way to know what you're not seeing. You don't know what you don't see in your newsfeed. You don't know what you don't see on Twitter. Nobody knows what you don't see except them. And that's the way they're controlling your thought. It's not with what you do see. It's with what you don't see. You know, they make it very hard for for people like you to get your message out. One of our prior guests sent me a, a couple of Voxer messages this morning talking about how his books have basically been banned from all these channels. He's got mm-hmm. a book about Trump. These channels just, they won't sell it, you know. Um, wow. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. It, it's just It's unbelievable. That's crazy. Hopefully. All the more
1: reason why we need to build up our own platforms and be able to reach out to people because we can't rely on these systems to allow us to stick around for very long.
0: These systems, just like the monetary system that we talked about with the cryptocurrencies, they need to become decentralized. And I know you might think they're decentralized now because anybody can have theoretically have a voice, you know, jump on Facebook, uh, you know, jump on Twitter. But will anybody see what you say or hear what you say? Nobody knows. Yeah, it's all up to the algorithm that controls everything. All right, Connor, thanks a lot for joining us. Appreciate
1: it. Thank you for having me on, Jason.